0: Uh, let me pray as we get into that. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for uh, things in your word like this that give us an insight into uh, what is happening uh, in your heavenly throne room. And I pray that as we look at it now and as we think about uh, just w- what you've called us to be as a church, Lord, would, would your word sink itself deep into our hearts? Uh, may it be a foundation for us as we go about this next week, and we ask this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we are starting a new series today where what we're going to do is actually dig into our liturgy. So every Sunday we walk through the same pattern of worship, and that's what a liturgy is. It's just a pattern for how you worship. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. And I want to begin with a quote that if you've been around Christchurch for any length of time, you've probably heard this quote numerous times. You've probably heard it from me. You might have heard it in a small group or even just in a conversation. And the quote comes from the late pastor, writer, and Bible translator Eugene Peterson. And as he writes this, uh, he's reflecting on just how it is that spiritual growth happens. And uh, here's what he writes. He says, everything in the gospel is livable. And my pastoral task was to get it lived. It was not enough that I announced the gospel, explain it, or whip up enthusiasm for it. I wanted it lived. Lived in detail. Lived on the streets and on the job. Lived in the bedrooms and kitchens. Lived through cancer and divorce, lived with children and in marriage, along the way, I found that this also meant living it myself, which turned out to be a far more formidable assignment. I realized that this was going to take some time. I settled in for the long haul. That's when the phrase from Nietzsche, a long obedience in the same direction, embedded itself in my imagination. And I love what he says there, that to get the gospel lived, to get it lived in detail, he says, I realized that it was going to take some time. And so I settled in for the long haul, a long obedience in the same direction. And that is what it is to grow spiritually. And so what does that long obedience look like? What does it look like to get the gospel lived in detail in our jobs and in our homes and in our marriages in our singleness in our parenting in our bedrooms and kitchens in the midst of crisis and joy? What does it look like to grow spiritually in and through all of these things to actually live the gospel out? Well, this is what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. How do we get the gospel lived in every nook and cranny of our lives? And so there is actually a pattern of spiritual growth that has been around the Christian church for several millennia. It comes right out of the pages of Scripture. And once you begin to see this pattern in one place, you end up seeing it over and over and over again all through the Bible. In fact, the pattern is the very shape of the Christian gospel itself. And that pattern then practiced over and over and over and over again in the life of a Christian is how the gospel gets lived, lived in detail, in all the nooks and crannies of life. And one of the clearest examples in all of the Bible is Isaiah chapter 6. And so we're going to start this whole series by looking there. And here's the pattern, and again, if you've been around Christ Church for any length of time, you'll recognize this pattern right away. The pattern is up, down, up, and out. You Recognize that? Uh, That's the pattern of our liturgy every single Sunday. And we got that pattern not only from this passage in Isaiah 6, but from church history as faithful churches have also, in their regular gathered worship, they followed this particular pattern uh, in their liturgies for nearly two millennia. And so this week, what we're going to do is I'm going to give an overview, and then in the following weeks, we'll take uh, each of those postures, up, down, up, and out. We'll take them one by one as we go along. And so as we start this series, three parts to our sermon today, we're going to look first at, at part one, which is the postures of spiritual growth. That's the up, down, up, out. And then in part two, the curation of spiritual growth. And then finally, part three, the content of spiritual growth. So part one, the postures, part two, the curation, and part three, the content of spiritual growth. And... Okay, look at me. I'm telling you this up front so that you don't start looking at your watches later. Part one is the bulk of the sermon. So when I get to part two and part three, we're almost done, okay? So just don't freak out when we're still in part one uh, quite a ways in. It's still a pretty normal length of sermon, okay? So just stick with me through the whole thing. When we get to point two and three, we're almost done. So part one, the postures of spiritual growth. Now, for centuries, scholars have pointed out this four-part structure to these verses in Isaiah chapter 6. Four distinct things happen in this passage. In other words, it's a pattern. And uh, again, we talk about this structure as looking up, looking down, raised up, and sent out. So verses 1 to 4, just so you get the outline, verses 1 to 4 are looking up. Verse 5 is looking down. Verses 6 and 7 are being raised up. And then verse 8 and 9 are being sent out. So let's first uh, look up. And the passage starts out by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, I love this, because normally things in the Bible aren't dated that way. You don't normally say, in the year that uh, this guy died, this thing happened. Uh, Normally what they say is, in the 52nd year of King Uzziah, this thing happened. And so why, in this passage, why say that he, in the year that he died? Well, Isaiah's trying to tell us something. He's actually breaking the normal pattern of how you say something, so he wants us to pay attention to this. And what he's indicating is that this vision happened in a time of upheaval. And think about this, the monarch who reigned for 52 years has died. And so there's political and cultural, and therefore even in Isaiah's own life, personal upheaval. That in their country, in their culture, in their lives, everything is unstable. Because the monarch, the sovereign, has died. So that's the context, that's what's going on there. But then look at what Isaiah does. Do you see where it says, I saw the Lord? Look very closely. Uh, Because do you see that capital L and then a lowercase O-R-D? Put that on the slide for us. So it looks like that. Capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Lots of times in the Bible, you see the word Lord and go to the next one. It looks like this, all capitals. So when the Bible puts the word Lord in all caps, that's indicating that that is the holy name of God. It's the word Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all caps, equals Yahweh. It's the holy name. It's the name that God used to introduce himself when he introduced himself to Moses. So that's the holy name of God. But when it's just a capital L and a lowercase O-R-D, that's a different Hebrew word. It's the word Adonai. Adonai is a title. It means sovereign. In other words, it means king. And that's what it means here in this passage. I saw the capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And so do you see what Isaiah is doing here? He's saying, verse 1, In the year that the sovereign died, I saw the sovereign, the true Lord. In the year that we lowered the sovereign down into the ground, I saw the sovereign high and exalted. In the year that the sovereign was removed from the throne, I saw the sovereign seated on the throne. In other words, Isaiah is being given a vision of the true sovereign, capital S, sovereign. His eyes are being lifted up from his immediate reality to see an ultimate reality, that more sovereign than any earthly king, even somebody who reigned for 52 years, more sovereign than even the longest reigning monarch, is an ultimate king, an ultimate capital S sovereign. And what that vision does is it leads to worship. Look at the description, verse 1. I saw the Lord high and exalted. And in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. Either you repeat the word, or like lots of Hebrew poetry, you repeat the idea. And here we have the Lord, capital L, not just high up, but high up and exalted. And then he goes on to say in verse 1 that he is seated on a throne. In other words, the most exalted seat in the room, the seat of the capital S Sovereign, And then it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, are you beginning to compile a picture yet of this glory, of this particular sovereign? This high and exalted one. And his clothes are so majestic, it says that they fill the room. And so the robe filling the room, it actually has to do with his presence. His presence is overwhelming. His presence has filled this room. But not only that, notice where this overwhelming presence is located. You hear the word sovereign, you hear the word king, and what do you think of? You think of a palace, you think of a castle. But this sovereign doesn't sit on a throne in a palace or a castle or under the rotunda of a capital building. Look at where this king is. He is high and exalted, seated on a throne in a what? In a temple. And that can only mean one thing. It means worship. It means worship. Now, the description continues because there are other beings that says uh, there are seraphim. Do you see that word there, seraphim? It's the only time in the Bible this word is used. Anywhere else, it doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. It's a unique word that actually has to do with fire. It literally means burning one or bright one, meaning these beings that are surrounding the sovereign seated on the throne in the temple Even the beings surrounding him, they have a glory to them. They have a brightness to them. So much so that if you and I saw them in their glorious brightness, we would be tempted to bow down and worship them. And yet notice, notice the burning ones, the bright ones. Notice they're flying above, and they are there to serve the one who is seated on the throne. And it says that his glory is so great that they have to cover their faces and cover their feet. And the idea here is that even though they themselves, the burning ones, even though they themselves have their own glory, the bright ones, it's saying that there is a glory more bright, more burning than their own, so much so that they have to cover their own faces so as not to be blinded by it. Let me put that another way. God is even too glorious Too bright for other glorious beings to even look at him. And then it says this, verse 3, that these bright ones, the seraphim, it says they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the, the verb there for calling it indicates this continuous action. It's saying that it's never ceasing. It is are constantly without stopping saying to one another, the constant soundtrack of the throne room of heaven is holy, holy, holy. The Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then here's where this idea of repetition in the Hebrew language comes into play on an even grander scale. Because as I already mentioned, in ancient Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. You repeat the same word or the same idea. For example, in Genesis 14.10, when the author wants to say that uh, there were some pits that were dug in the ground, he wants to say that they were really deep. Uh, He doesn't say deep pits. He says in Hebrew, pit pits. Uh, Or in 2 Kings 25.15, when the author wants to talk about pure gold, gold that's been purified, refined, the way that it's expressed uh, in Hebrew is it's gold gold. Now, if you and I want to emphasize something, if we want to talk about gold in that way, we would say it's pure gold. Or we would say something is very, or something is uber, right? She was very happy. She was uber happy. But in Hebrew, you use the same word twice. But look closely at our text in verse three, because how many times did the seraphim say the word holy? Three times. This is one of only four occasions in the entire Bible where a word is repeated three times for emphasis. In other words, what that's saying is the holiness of God is so great, they actually had to come up with a super superlative. And what is holiness, by the way? The word has to do, again, with brightness. Right? Remember the seraphim, the burning ones, the bright ones, they have to cover their own faces. So there's this idea of brightness or separate, separateness. This has, actually has a moral quality to it. And so what they're expressing is a total and unique moral majesty beyond what normal words could ever convey. They had to come up with their own way of expressing it. And the only thing they can do to express that brightness, that glory, that separateness, that holiness, is to say it three times, holy, holy, holy. And then they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so not only is the temple full of his glory, but then it says that the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, his presence is all over the earth. The whole earth is full of it. And that word there, glory, it's the Hebrew word kavod, which originally means something like weight or heavy. And so what that's saying is that there is a weight to this sovereign who is seated on the throne and exalted. Um, Many years ago, in fact, just after I'd finished college, um, I was... uh, at a friend's house and uh, they had a trampoline. And uh, the friends I was with, there were a couple girls there and one of them, this is long before I knew Emmy, by the way, um, but there were a couple girls there and I really wanted to impress one of them. And so we're out jumping on the trampoline, as you do, to impress girls. And, um, and I actually had some, some pretty good trampoline skills back in the day. I just learned, by the way, that trampoline is an Olympic event, did you know that? I wish I'd known that, I'd have a gold medal. Anyway, um, we're out jumping on the trampoline, I'm like, I'm gonna impress these girls. And so one of my many trampoline skills was the, the double bounce. Do you know about the double bounce? Or if you're bouncing with somebody else and you land uh, at just exactly the right time, like on your rear end, uh, it can send them twice as high in the air. So I'm like, I'm going to impress these girls with the double bounce. And uh, the one I like is going to fall in love with me and it's going to be great. And so we're bouncing and I'm timing the jump. And so then I go to, to land on my rear end and um, I hit the trampoline. And rather than me bouncing and the girls bouncing, the trampoline tears two-thirds of the way around. And I go crashing down to the ground, and the girls come tumbling down uh, next to me. Now, here's the point of this. The trampoline could not handle my weight. It could not handle my heaviness. In other words, the trampoline could not contain my glory, okay? my kavod. And so what that means is the whole thing shook and came crashing to the ground. And that is actually the very next image in verse four, believe it or not, that there is such a glory, such a weightiness to God that verse four, listen to this, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And are you beginning to see this? Are you beginning to compile this complete and utter vision of glory of God's holiness? And so what's the point of all this? Well, it's this, that God is more glorious than everything. There is not a being, a place, a thing, anywhere in heaven or on earth that has more glory. In other words, more weight than God. And when a person comes into contact with that kind of holiness, a holy, 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 a weight of glory that fills the entire earth, when somebody comes into contact with that glory, you cannot respond with boredom. You cannot respond with indifference. In fact, if you actually came into contact with this being, you would not even be able to reject him. Because whenever something weightier than you comes into your life, it changes you. You have to orient your whole life around it. And that's what happens to Isaiah next, which is the second posture down. So we've looked up and we've seen God in his glory, seated on his throne with all of his weightiness, more glorious than any being, than any place you can ever think of. And then, now in verse 5, that causes him to look down. And so the very presence of God actually causes a visceral reaction in Isaiah because look what he says, verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now I want you to look at that really closely because notice what he says. He says, Woe to me. Not woe is me. He says, woe to me. And there's a big difference between the two. Because if you hear somebody say or you say yourself, oh woe is me. That is a sort of self-loathing pity party. I couldn't get tickets to Taylor Swift last month. Woe is me. The restaurant that I wanted to go to has an hour-long wait. Oh, woe is me. I got a parking ticket. Well, welcome to LA. Woe is me. But that is very different to saying, woe to me. It's very different to saying, woe to me. The word woe in the Bible always indicates a judgment. And so get this. Follow what this means. It means then that what Isaiah is saying is judgment to me. He is calling down his own judgment upon himself. He is saying, in light of who I have seen, in light of the glorious, holy being, seated on a throne, high and exalted, the three times holy, 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 in light of seeing him, I deserve to be judged. Woe to me. And then he takes it further by saying, I am ruined. The word there for ruined is actually related to the idea of silence. And so put that all together. What he's saying is effectively judgment to me. Bring the judgment on me that I deserved. I am silenced. Meaning I have no defense. I plead guilty. I am caught out. I cannot stand before this righteous, holy, holy, holy God. And then he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That is the very locus of his sin. He has said He has said with his lips things that are sinful. The people that he lives amongst, they have said things that are sinful. And so, what he's doing is he's confessing this. And what's happening is he has come into contact with the glorious capital S sovereign who is holy, holy, holy. And the only response to coming into contact with a God like that is to immediately see yourself rightly, to see your own sinfulness. And to confess it. And so therefore he confesses and he repents. So follow Isaiah's pattern. He started by looking up. That's the first posture. Then looking down. That's the second posture. Looking down at his own need for confession. Then thirdly, he's raised up. So look at this verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now notice two things here. First, notice the actions of the seraphim. And then secondly, notice the result of the actions of the seraphim. So first, the action. they take a live, One of them takes a live coal from the altar. And one of these burning ones, the bright ones, the seraphim, they take this burning coal from the altar. And the altar in the temple is a representation of forgiveness and atonement. Forgiveness and atonement for sin was always made on the altar. And so the seraph takes a burning symbol of forgiveness and atonement and he touches Isaiah's lips, the very locus of his sin that he's confessed, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so that's the action. The seraphim, the bright burning one, take a symbol, a burning symbol of forgiveness and atonement and they touch his lips. And then notice the results of the seraph's actions in verse 7. With it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And so the result of the purifying action is forgiveness and atonement. His guilt is taken away, his sin is atoned for. Now what does atonement mean? Well, to atone means not only to make the payment, but to restore the relationship. And what you have here in this passage is a picture of the Christian gospel, a foretaste of it. That just as Isaiah accepts the touch of the burning coal from the altar of atonement applied to his sin, you and I accept the sacrifice of Christ on another type of altar, on the cross, where the blood of Christ shed on the cross, that blood is applied to our sin. And so to receive that is to have your guilt removed and your sin atoned for. And so this is the result, guilt removed and sin atoned for. And then notice the last movement, the last posture, if you will, of our passage. So we've looked up, down, he's been raised up, and now, verse 8, he's sent out. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. And then God said, Go and tell this people. And then the message he's given to tell is a whole other sermon for another day. It's a little bit complicated, but the point is, He is sent out to tell others a message from God. And so the entire movement of this passage, all four postures, it can be represented this way. Can you go to the next slide? It looks like this. And so we have there, you see the throne that is looking up, that is seeing God exalted on his throne. That's looking up to worship. And then as we do that, that causes us, like Isaiah, to look down. That's the downward arrow, to bring our brokenness and our confession before God. And then as Christ meets us at the cross, we are then lifted up, raised up, and then we're sent out. So there you have it, up, down, up, and out. Uh, That's what it looks like. But in the life of the Christian, not only is this how a person enters a relationship with God, it's not only how a Christian is restored to God for the first time, but it's actually how we go on living a faithful life with him year by year, month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. So much so that Luther said in Thesis number one of his 95 theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation, he said, the whole of the life of a Christian is repentance. In other words, what Luther was saying is that the whole of the life of a Christian is this pattern of up, down, up, and out. And so the lifetime of a growing Christian actually looks like this next slide. It looks like this. And you can just keep going and going and going and going. And so what we're actually talking about here is a liturgy. A liturgy is a repeated set of actions that a person does over and over and over again to shape us and form us into a desired result. That's a liturgy. And so this is part one, up, down, up, and out. This is what it looks like. Now remember, parts two and three are much shorter. um, And so part two is the curation of spiritual growth. Now, I love Los Angeles. There is nowhere else uh, on earth that I would rather live. Um, And part of the reason uh, why I love L.A. is because there are some things in L.A. that are so L.A. you'd likely never see or hear them anywhere else. Uh, And so about a year ago, Emmy and I, we went to this little, tiny, very hip grocery store near our house. Uh, It's very small. You could actually fit two or maybe three of these tiny, hip grocery stores in this room. Um, And so we're kind of walking around this grocery store and enjoying all the things that are on there. And as we're getting ready to leave, we're walking past the counter. Uh, We didn't buy anything because we couldn't afford it, but we're walking past the counter. And this guy walks up to the woman behind the counter who clearly is the owner of this grocery store. And he says something you would only ever hear in a grocery store in Los Angeles. He says to her, I just love what you've curated here. Now, I'm not criticizing, I mean, it was funny, but I'm not criticizing. It's actually one of the reasons I love Los Angeles, that we're on the leading edge of culture. And right now, uh, very curated things are the leading edge of our culture. And so we love this idea of curation, right? Everything is curated. We have curated stores. We have curated social media accounts. We have curated experiences that we do, that only the best makes it on the shelf. You know, Only the best makes, gets posted on the feed. Only the best experience gets shared about. And it's that idea of curation that I want to apply to our method of spiritual growth. And so to curate something is to specially select what goes in or what goes on. And in Proverbs chapter 4, what you have in Proverbs 4 is an older, uh, wiser, father-type figure explaining to a younger man how to experience spiritual growth. And embedded in what this older, wiser spiritual father says to this younger man, is this idea of curation, of only putting the best thing on the shelf. And what he tells the younger man is, if you want to be a spiritual person, if you want to be faithful to God, if you want to be continually experiencing spiritual renewal, then do this. And in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, can we put that up? He says, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. This older, wiser father figure says, above all else, guard your heart. Why the heart? Well, because in the ancient world, the heart is the central control center of a person. Now, I realize that in our modern era, we think the mind is the central thing. So if you want, you could just replace that. Above all, guard your mind if you want to put it that way. But in the ancient era, spiritual growth happened in the heart. And the way he says to do it is to watch what you take in through your eyes, through your ears, through your tongue, and where you go with your feet Put that another way, the loading docks to what is in our hearts, the loading dock, how, what goes in there, comes through our eyes, through our ears, through our tongues, and through our feet. And so pay careful attention to what you do with your eyes, what you do with your ears, what you say with your tongues, where you go with your feet. In other words, what he's saying is, curate it. Only put in what is good and true and healthy and what leads to life, because verse 23 Everything you do flows from the heart. And the way that Christians have been following this advice for centuries has been all but lost in our modern era. The way that we've been doing it for centuries, though, is through liturgies. I mean, think about it. in going through the liturgy, going through this each week, you see with your eyes the Word of God. And you see it lived out in your brothers and sisters. You hear it spoken and read and sung. You, with your own tongue, speak it and sing it. You've walked in here with your feet. And every time you do that, every time you go through that liturgy, using your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your feet, you are inserting into the storehouse of your heart the gospel of Christ, truth about God, truth about yourself. This is why up, down, up, and out are so important to us as a church. This is our liturgy. And to use your feet to walk in here to see with your eyes, to say with your tongue, to hear with your ears, and to do that over and over and over and over again as you walk this path of long obedience in the same direction. As you do that, you are growing a spiritual life that will flourish in the face of any circumstance, good or bad. And so here's the point of all of this. It's not the novelty of of doing a liturgy. We don't do it because it's novel. It's the longevity of it. It's the doing it over and over and over again. That is the heart of spiritual growth, to curate a faith that grows through a long obedience in the same direction. Not the novelty, but the longevity. And in this church, that same direction we're all walking together is the same ancient path that Christians have walked for two millennia, up, down, up, and out. It's just our own words for it. Now, very briefly, and this is part three, the content of spiritual growth. The content of spiritual growth is just the gospel story. You know, the shape of Isaiah 6, and also our liturgy, up, down, up, and out, it's actually the shape of the gospel story itself. Just think about it. Up, Jesus Christ for all eternity, dwelling in unapproachable light within the Trinity, receiving the threefold holy, holy, holy of the seraphim. In other words, Jesus Christ, worshiped for all eternity past. Down, Jesus Christ, setting aside his glory, is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, descends down to the earth all the way to the point of death on a cross where he made atonement for the sins of humanity and then was lowered down even further into the grave. Raised up. Jesus Christ, on the third day, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and was exalted to the highest place where at the name of Jesus every knee bows to his capital S sovereignty. Out. Jesus Christ goes to prepare a place for us. And at the same time, he sends out his church to proclaim his death, resurrection, and ascension until he comes again, inviting others to know Christ and to trust him for their salvation. Every time we walk through those four postures of up, down, up, and out, we are reviewing and rehearsing the content of spiritual growth, and we're bringing it more and more into the center of our lives. And so there it is, our liturgy, right out of the pages of Scripture and practiced by millions of faithful and growing Christians for two millennia, up, down, up, out. And so our liturgy is a way of rehearsing the gospel itself, a way of making the gospel the most central liturgy of our lives, bringing about genuine, sustained spiritual growth over the long haul. This is the long obedience in the same direction. Now, let me very briefly and very specifically apply this uh, to us. Um, Walk through these four postures at home every day. And we're going to help you do that. We're introducing on Thursday at our midweek groups uh, a devotional guide that uh, in the front or front and back of it, uh, there'll be uh, a little liturgy in there that you can do every day, an up, down, up, and out liturgy. And then in the middle is the pages of this devotional to get you into God's Word. Begin to walk through these postures daily. Uh, number two, walk through these postures weekly. Every single Sunday, we walk through up, down, up, and out. And so here's what I want to challenge you. Um, it might be that uh, Saturday night or maybe Sunday morning, you, you, you're making the decision. Am I going to church today or not? Right? Every week, you, you make a new decision. You know, Am I going to go to church tomorrow? Am I going to go to church today? Every week, it's like you're making a new decision. Here's what I want to challenge you. Just make the decision today that Sunday morning is for gathering with other Christians to walk the long obedience in the same direction. So make the decision one time. And then every Sunday morning you wake up and it's just, this is what you do. It's the same thing, you get a job. You don't, on Monday morning, decide if you're going to work or not. And so we shouldn't be deciding on Sunday morning if we're going to worship God or not. And so decide that today. because. The the liturgy of the gospel, this up, down, up, and out, is the best counter-liturgy to our culture. And so make the liturgy of the gospel itself our daily and most central liturgy. One that shapes all of life, our inner life, our spiritual life, our family life, our work life, our friendships, our finances, our free time. Let this gospel liturgy be the most central one in your life. And it will begin to drown out all the other liturgies that our culture is drawing us towards let me close with this the the late Japanese theologian Kasuki Kiyama he wrote an essay called Three Mile an Hour God and in it he makes the point that throughout the Bible when God takes his people from one place to another so think Abraham walking the perimeter of the promised land or Joseph dragged off to Egypt Moses and the Israelites wandering the desert or Jesus going from town to town in Galilee and through Samaria and down to Jerusalem and back all of these journeys and more all of them done by foot And what Kiyama says is that the average speed a person walks is three miles an hour. And what he says is that the God of the Bible is a three-mile-an-hour God. Here's what he says in his essay. God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from which the technological speed to which we are now accustomed. It is slow, yet it is lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, whether we are currently hit by storm or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore it is the speed the love of God walks, three miles an hour, by a three-mile-an-hour God. Our culture wants you to move fast, to be self-absorbed, to be self-righteous, to be a consumer. But instead, what if a group of people right in the center of Los Angeles, the place that preaches fast-paced self-absorption more than any other place on earth, What if a group of people in that city curated a counter-liturgy daily and weekly? And instead of moving at the pace of our culture, which is fast and instantaneous, what if some people in the center of Los Angeles curated a liturgy that caused them to move at the pace of God at three miles an hour, walking the path of a long obedience in the same direction? Imagine the impact on your life, imagine the impact on your family's life and on our city if we all slow down and walk with God at three miles an hour. Someone once commented to me that our church is like slow church. I like that. A three mile an hour church, walking with God at the pace of his love, three miles an hour. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you walk at the pace of love, three miles an hour. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to curate in our lives this long obedience in the same direction, three miles an hour, up, down, up, and out, over and over and over again, that the the very shape of the gospel would become the shape of our lives, Lord, we pray and ask that you would do that. Help us to slow down. Help us to walk with you. We ask it in Jesus' name.